Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast. I'm Keith Caulfield, Senior Director of Billboard Charts. And I'm Katie Atkinson, Billboard's Deputy Editor Digital. Hello, Katie. How are you? Doing great, Keith. How about yourself? I'm all right. Uh, Big week for, um, well, the world, I suppose. Sure, but also a big week on the charts. Oh, look at that segue just directing you right away from the inauguration into... (laughs) Into what we do here at the Pop Shop, because That's you know, right. you know what, the Billboard Pop Shop podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop and hardly ever politics on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got chart news about two eye-popping debuts atop the Billboard Hot 100 Songs chart and the Billboard 200 Albums chart, as Olivia Rodrigo's driver's license explodes straight in at number one on the Hot 100, while Morgan Wallen makes country music history with the chart-topping arrival of Dangerous, the double album on the Billboard 200. Plus, we have an interview with AJR. We caught up with the Brother Trio to talk about their first top 10 hit on the Hot 100, Bang, their upcoming album, OK Orchestra, and their participation in the We the People concert on Sunday night as part of the festivities around the inauguration of President-elect Biden and Kamala Harris. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast provider so you won't miss an episode. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit billboard.com slash podcasts. So let's do the chart chat. First up, singer-actress Olivia Rodrigo starts the year off right as the 17-year-old, who until this week was best known for her roles on Disney Channel shows, debuts straight in at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 with Driver's License. The track was released on January 8th and immediately captured the attention of music fans and was a runaway success on streaming services. The song earned 76 million streams in the U.S. in the week ending January 14th, according to MRC data, the biggest streaming week for a song since Cardi B's WAP featuring Megan Thee Stallion bowed with 93 million in the week ending August 13th, 2020. Driver's License also sold 38,000 copies and earned 8.1 million in radio audience in the week ending January 17th. And wait, there's more. It debuts at number 31 on the pop airplay chart. There's lots more to tell about this huge debut, so make sure to check out Gary Trust coverage on Billboard.com as well. Katie, it's arguable that most people are just getting to know who Olivia is right about now. Um, what do we know about her and the song itself and why it's taken off in such a huge way? I mean, I would love to be able to answer that last question. I think that that a lot of people are scratching their heads right now because while there's a lot of little things that could explain it, it is a phenomenon. So I'm not going to try to tell you why it got this big this fast. But what I do know is that she already had a following because of being on Disney shows previously, most notably the uh, Disney Plus series, High School Musical, the musical, the series. Sure. (laughs) Which is an outstanding title. And um, 
there's a little off-screen drama that fans are are thinking that this song, you know, might have something to do with between her and her co-star from that series. Um, Olivia is uh, only 17 years old. Uh, she apparently, like, I don't even know if there was an actual relationship or just a crush or whatever with the guy on her show. He's dating somebody else, somebody who's been a guest on the Pop Shop podcast before. Oh, um, he's dating Sabrina Carpenter. Uh, so like there's all these like real life drama things that none of the people involved have actually addressed. So this is all just fan conjecture at this point. But I think that that intrigue is, that feeds is also it. yeah feeds into the success of this. And then the song is just like a solidly great, you know, well written, beautiful song. What did it remind you of? If oh, anything, um, sonically. Well, I mean, I wasn't surprised for that to find that she was inspired uh, by Taylor Swift and that Taylor Swift appreciates her just because obviously the autobiographical aspect of it and it being like a heartbreaking love song. But was there something specifically? Well, by the way, thinking? by the way, Taylor co-signed her on social media yes. and, and, and basically endorsed the song. I, I heard echoes of Billie Eilish mm, yeah. quite sort of vividly in terms of how she delivers her vocals. Um, so I think maybe the combination of uh, emotional way that she delivers the vocals in kind of that Billie Eilish tone combined with the possibly autobiographical, cryptic, is it about a relationship, we don't know, kind of Taylor Swiftisms of it. I also you was know? telling our coworker Denise this week when she was asking the same questions, like how, why, etc., <laughs> um, that I kind of feel like it's like we're watching a uh, a Selena Gomez or a Demi Lovato or a Miley Cyrus or an Ariana Grande, any number of these female pop stars who were born from the Disney or Nickelodeon shows. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the mainstream caught on and thought, oh, they have great music and then discovered the backstory because they're not, you know, young enough to have enjoyed the shows to begin with. It's like we're watching all of that play out in one week. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like we, you know, everyone kind of did this like step-by-step song by song with those other women I just mentioned. But with Olivia, it's as if it all just like exploded because of the internet, because of streaming, because of everything all in one week, we watched a child star turned, you know, nearly adult star just explode. Also, this was all over TikTok too, apparently like all the influence, all the um, really influential TikTokers were apparently all over the track. And the aforementioned drama was also talked a lot about on TikTok. People putting up their theories and their speculations, breaking down each lyric. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You can read I more mean, about that on billboard.com. At the same time, though, <laughs> if you don't know about any of this, which I didn't really, you can just listen to the song and just take it as what it is, a song. And I can tell you a lot of the uh, the phrases and, um, and uh, just the chorus, lots of parts of it have been getting caught in my head and repeating always the sign of a, of a hit song as well. And it just um, also was number one on the UK charts, which it, so it's a global phenomenon at this point. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Well, uh, let's move on here to uh, the billboard 200 albums chart where Morgan Wallen lands his first number one album. And in a quite huge way uh, as his 30 track, album dangerous the double album 
bows atop the list, breaking the record for the biggest streaming week ever for a country album. Dangerous starts with 265,000 equivalent album units earned in the week ending January 14th, the biggest week for a country album in more than two years since Carrie Underwood's Cry Pretty launched at number one back in 2018 with 266,000 units. Further, Dangerous bows with 240 million on-demand streams for its 30 songs, more than doubling the single-week streaming record for a country album, formerly held by Luke Combs's What You See Is What You Get, when it was reissued with bonus tracks last October, prompting its return to number one and 102 million streams for its songs in the week ending October 29th, 2020. Wow, what a huge week for Morgan, and I'm not surprised that he's the one who kind of, you know, broke the the whole country country streaming, you know, I, I don't know what the word I'm looking for Yeah, is. no, I think I think in the past year or so when people have been looking at like, okay, what, what country star, like after Luke Combs, who's going to be the next, and I think everyone was like, oh, it's going to be Morgan, I think it's going to be Morgan, and hey, look, it was Morgan! <laughs> so popular, and so popular with the younger crowd, so it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. And now it's time for our interview with AJR. Friends of the podcast have returned to the show. This is their third time. And it's on the occasion of their very first top 10 hit on the Billboard Hot 100 with Bang. We caught up with the brother trio of Adam, Jack, and Ryan Met to talk all about their reaction to their first top 10. What it's been like seeing the song grow over these past 11 months Which since its release. Crazy. Their upcoming album, OK Orchestra, due out in March, and how musically it's the most extreme they've ever been in terms of the genres that they capture on the album, the inspiration behind the album's emotional song, My Play, and their thoughts on being part of the We the People concert this past Sunday night, and how another president happened to ask them to be a part of a previous inauguration concert. Hmm. Hmm. So, take a listen to our chat with AJR. Here we go. Hello to AJR and welcome to the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so first of all, since uh, Keith and I can see you, but our podcast listeners cannot, um, could each of you just introduce yourselves real briefly so we can hear your voice and your name? I thought you were going to say, describe what you're wearing. I thought it's for, for, yeah, that's, that's, for some reason, that's what I thought you were going to say. Um, I'll go first. I'm Jack Met from the band AJR. I'm Ryan. I am Adam, and this is what my voice sounds like. Oh, <laughs> Perfect. Now they we're are... established. Um, well, we want to start off by congratulating you on your very first top 10 hit on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I can't believe we're hearing those words. Oh. It's pretty darn cool. Um, Jack, where were you when you found out and were any of the three of you together at the time when you did find out? We were all three together and oh. we were shooting some content, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. And we were shooting some... Some stuff for upcoming TV performances. Yeah. And Adam got the news and we all sort of ran outside and Adam was like, we're not 10, we're nine. And we all sort of had the nine celebration, you know, which was, it's a big step up from the 10. <laughs> we're, we're really in there now. You know, we got some cushion room. Adam, you know, what has it been like watching the song, you know, grow since it was released basically almost a year ago? Like it, it, it must be surreal to see the kind of progression that it's had. It's crazy. Uh, for us, every single one of our songs got 
big in a different way. Uh, we had a song that blew up on Spotify, like Week was just huge on Spotify and Sober Up and Burn the House Down got really big on alternative radio. And this is our first song that actually is growing on pop radio and is funny that it's still growing after a year but it's crazy crazy to see that we're reaching new audiences every time we have a new single so seeing it grow for so long I, I don't know I, I like things that take a long time to grow because that's how our whole career has been you know, it's just been a slow grow step by step every year and for us that's way better than you know massive hit single and then never hear from you again and <laughs> a, a few a few things have changed since you released Bang in February, you know, just the world in general. Uh, Ryan, do you remember what your plans or your timeline was musically back then, like when you first released it and how you've obviously had to adapt since lockdown started? Yeah, Bang was originally supposed to be for uh, the deluxe version of Neo Theater, our last album. Um, cause it was like, okay, we need a song out to just get some fresh music. Uh, cause we're about to tour all year nonstop. And it'd be kind of <laughs> weird to just tour off of an album that we put out the year before. Um, and so that obviously none of that happened. Um, so we, we ended up putting out bang and then we kind of realized, oh, this sounds actually a little different than Neo theater. I'm not sure it would have gone on Neo theater sonically. Um, it feels a little darker, a little bit more like a next step, uh, uh, being, uh, disillusioned a little bit, right? Neo theater was very much about um, putting up a veil and being like, I'm going to be young forever. And this was kind of the next step of like, oh, shoot, what, what happens after I'm going to be young forever? Um, and so we kind of thought that's kind of the blueprint for this next album, the these realizations hitting you. Um, and so we decided to basically not, uh, you know, because we couldn't tour, we basically uh, spent the entire year uh, 2020 writing our next album that's called OK Orchestra. That comes out March 26th, and we're basically just finishing it up right now, like as we speak, like a second before we started this podcast, we're, we're working on the last song. Oh, that's thrilling. We know that it'll have Bang along with Bummerland and My Play. Mm -hmm. um, but what can you tell us sort of about the overall sound and intention? Because you just talked about, you know, the last album and kind of where you're coming from there. You know, where is this album kind of sit with you guys? I think we've really thought about it as like the third, um, the third uh, chapter in the trilogy that was the Click Neo Theater and now OK Orchestra, which has been uh, both artistically, like from the art and musically, kind of right. Don't you feel like it's been like three steps of like yeah, totally growing up a little bit, um, and they've all been in the same world of these musical swirling trumpets and orchestra stuff, um, and so this feels like kind of the final chapter of that little saga. Um, but more specifically, musically, I think it's the most extreme we've ever been. I, I think we have like some of the happiest. We're just working on a song right now that's very like Americana, um, it, like uh, like Dave Alvin, Brandy Carlisle, like that kind of feel. We're kind of going extremely in that direction and extremely in the hard hip hop direction and extremely in uh, the kind of classical direction. It's more extreme than any album that we've made before um, sonically. And, um, you know, Keith mentioned my play, which um, thematically is just such, I mean, it's, first of all, the, the video for it is absolutely beautiful. It's beautiful animated video. Such, a, I think, a universal theme, and but it's sad. It's such a sad theme. So, like, how did the idea of um, broaching this topic come about? 
Oh, uh, I mean, okay, well, yeah, well, AJR has always been as honest as possible. You know, we've always made it a mission to write about exactly what's going on in our life. And usually, coincidentally, what's going on in our life is what's going on in everyone else's life, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what we found. So obviously, our parents did, you know, separate and uh, we said, okay, like, let's try to do AJR's version of that. And obviously that song has been done before, the divorce song. Um, and uh, I, I'm gonna give all the props to Ryan because he's kind of formulated the, the, the idea of this song. He said, okay, I mean, we could say, I am sad because my parents went, went through divorce and, and people would be like, okay, that, that is true. I'm sure that's true. But then you, know, you could do that or you could really put an image in someone's mind. And he said, okay, what's the most emotional thing you could think of from your childhood? And it's that moment that everyone had where they made a play when they were five or six years old. And they're like, mom, dad, watch this. I worked so hard on this. And then there's that moment, which is so tragic of it getting taken away from you. One of the happiest uh, you know, most proud of yourself moments in your life, just getting, you know, stripped away. And in that moment, I was like, oh, you know, that's that really, I visualized that and I felt that in my body. Uh, so we were like, okay, that's that's definitely the, the, <laughs> the concept of the song. And then it was just a matter of, you know, trying to, uh, you know, create a million of those moments within the song, you know, even up to the last moment, which is like, uh, will you pretend you didn't know if I made a mistake, which is a really emotional line. Uh, maybe we'll, for we'll forget it all while you're watching my play, which perfectly sums up like the saddest thing ever, which is a kid trying to keep his parents together, which is never, which never works, but they really think they could do it. So uh, we, we thought, let's just try to uh, get as emotional as, as possible with this already kind of uh, tragic concept. Uh, you worked. did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, you were able to perform the song uh, live for the first time during your one spectacular night live stream mm -hmm. concert. Um, after not being able to tour and perform like normal, what was it like putting a concert together, um, especially considering the uniqueness of the way you structured this particular show? Um, oh, it was amazing. It, it was really cool. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was cool and it was really also unfortunate because while we were, you know, rehearsing and building the show, we were like, oh my God, I wish people could see this in person. But uh, what was really cool is we were also able to do stuff that we wouldn't really be able to do safely with an audience there you know we, we had me on like wires and I was flying around all the place and there was like a lot of moments in rehearsal where I would be falling and like so, so it wasn't quite safe um but uh it, it was really exciting because we really got to let loose so you know we sat down at the beginning of the pandemic and we knew this was going to happen and we we're like okay let's just let our imagination absolutely run away uh with us and we came up with you know me walking on a on a laser walk and me drawing stuff all over the video wall and it was just like sort of we got to be back in our you know child bedroom coming up with uh, making the play again literally you know that that's kind of what it felt like the other um, thing that's really cool for us about this is that so many people saw this show that had never been to an AJR show before because if you think about all the countries that we've never toured I mean we've never toured to South America we were supposed to and then obviously come to Brazil yeah exactly exactly <laughs> Southeast Asia, even places in the US that are not major cities that we've never been to, people actually got to see the show, which was really incredible. And it makes us think like, okay, maybe we should do this in addition to touring so everyone can actually see the show that we're putting together, even if we can't make it to their city. Um, Ryan, there, there was an interesting uh, moment in the live stream where you know you explain all the musical elements of Bang and how Bang came together. We've been doing that for a little while in our shows. Um, it, it's I think it started very simply and then it's kind of developed into the point now we have visuals behind us and stuff um, but I think a lot of the idea behind that is uh, this it could be done really badly like everything we're about to do could be done really badly it could be really boring and I could talk about the compression and the EQ going into his voice and stuff and pull up an actual Pro Tools session but the whole idea was let's show how 
everybody thinks we make a song. Let's show how everybody imagines Pro Tools looks like. Shape, a purple triangle is the hi-hat and a red square is the bass, you know? Like, let's, let's show what the absolute layman would think making music is so fun and it looks like this and let's give them that kind of experience. Yeah, it's super fun. And also I'm sure anybody in your, your crowd who is interested in making music, it'll spark that interest and then they can dig deeper, obviously. And so we've got a lot, of, all that. Uh, a lot of stories about that, about how it inspired them, which is really cool. That, that's, that's super cool for us. And um, so listeners will not hear this interview until next Tuesday, but coming up this Sunday, you guys will be performing uh, on the We the People concert for Joe Biden's presidential inauguration. So um, what can you tell us about what went into planning your performance and, and why you guys wanted to be involved? Well, first of all, it's a huge honor to be involved. Um, I did some surrogate campaigning for the Biden campaign, you know, helping to get people out voting. And it was such an interesting experience because, you know, fans know us from the music and from the shows. And then to be able to talk about why certain issues are really important to me and us was, was really nice because it, it showed a different side of the fans that I'm normally interacting with and who we are as people. So uh, as a result of that and, you know, working with, with the Biden team and the Harris team on different things, they invited us to come and participate in this show. And it's kind of a, a dream come true, especially after the last four years for us to be able to, you know, ring in this, this new, uh, this new candidate and this new president and this new vice president that is history making. And so the song we're gonna be playing on Sunday is Bummerland. And it sounds like a title that might not necessarily be appropriate for the occasion, but it's actually a really uplifting song. So we're just so honored and excited to be part of ringing in this new administration uh, this week. It's gonna be amazing. And I have to, I have, yeah, I have to tell the, the, the famous story fr from our past, which is for, uh, you know four years ago when Trump was elected, he asked us, to play at his inauguration. And I remember like being, you know, super shocked and then being not so shocked because I realized what had happened was he obviously went to like the A-list artists and they all said no. And then he went to B and then C and everyone said no. And then he went down to like E or F, which was like where we were at at the time. <laughs> and we also said no fairly quickly. So I'm guessing he just kind of kept going down the alphabet oh as people just said, no, no, no. So now this is a really cool moment that we actually get to do it for real with Joe Biden. Well, wow. that is incredible. And uh, we look forward to seeing that performance on Sunday. Um, if you are listening to this on Tuesday now, hopefully you can go back and watch it or you've already seen it. Um, but thank you so much for chatting with us. We're looking forward to hearing the album in March. And uh, we really appreciate you stopping by. Thanks thank so you. much, guys. Good to see you again. Thanks again to AJR for making the time to talk with us again. It was so good to catch up with them, and we cannot wait to hear that new album. Uh, and also, AJR, thank you for bearing with us through our technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> it all turned out fine. Don't worry. Yes, you didn't hear a thing. And now it's time for the chart stat of the week. Five years ago this week, Justin Bieber landed his second number one on the Billboard Hot 100 with Sorry, as the track rose two to one on the chart dated January 23rd, 2016. The tune had been kept at bay for 10 weeks on the list, with eight of those at number two, while Adele's Hello held at number one. So if you're going to be runner up to something, it might as well be Adele. <laughs> Bieber made his Hot 100 debut back in 2009 with One Time, 
which peaked at number 17 in January of 2010. But despite dozens of chart hits, he still hadn't achieved a number one until, what do you mean, debuted atop the list dated September 19th, 2015. He quickly followed it with two more number ones, Sorry, for three weeks, and then Love Yourself for two weeks in February of 2016. Since Bieber's 1-2-3 punch of his first three number ones in just five months, give or take, back in 2015 and 2016, he's since logged three more number ones via his featured role on Luis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee's Despacito, which spent 16 weeks at number one in 2017, a featured turn on DJ Khaled's I'm the One, which was number one for, appropriately, one week in 2017, and Stuck With You his collaboration with Ariana Grande in early 2020, which spent one week at number one. So there you have it. Five years ago this week, Justin Bieber notched his second number one of a now total six liters on the Hot 100 with Sorry. All right, we've reached the end of our big shoe. Any parting words, Katie? Oh, man. I can't even remember a time when Justin Bieber didn't have a number one song. It's hard to think back that far. It was kind of incredible that at that point in time in his career, with all the success that he had, somehow a number one on the Hot 100 had eluded him. He'd had a bunch of number one albums. It was kind of like it was the reverse of Rihanna. For like a long time, Rihanna Hmm. had all these number ones on the Hot 100, but no number one album. Oh, that's funny. She's fixed that. It's fine. Yeah, don't um, worry. Rihanna's good. <laughs> I, ha- I have an idea for a song that we should go out on. Okay. Um, uh, I'm suggesting Living in America by James Brown. I support that. I will never turn down hearing some James Brown. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.